Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Jalani Tulo, Tracy Bumgard and Figuilele Nwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, South Africa's opposition parties unite to have President Jacob Zuma removed from office and Kenyan government faces criticism for deporting opposition lawyer. In economics news, business expresses concern over delay in deciding President Zuma's future and in sports news, India beat South Africa by 124 runs in third ODI. But first up, the news with Shralani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. More than 300 child soldiers have been released by armed groups in South Sudan, the second largest such release since civil war began five years ago. The laying down of the guns ceremony for 87 girls and 224 boys was the first step in a process that should see at least 700 child soldiers freed in the coming weeks. The United Nations says putting down of weapons and rejoining normal life is just the beginning of the journey. More than 19,000 children Children are thought to have been recruited by all sides since the civil war broke out in 2013. The UN has released almost 2,000. The government of Chad has suspended 10 opposition parties for disturbing public order and inciting violence. This after they backed trade union calls for a mass protest over austerity measures. In a statement, Security Minister Ahmad Mohamed Bashir says the party's activities have been suspended for a duration of two months. The authorities also announced on the radio that a march scheduled for Thursday by civil groups, trade unions and opposition politicians has been banned. Chad has imposed and cuts in public spending that the finance ministry says are vital to stave off bankruptcy. South African civil society organization Save South Africa says it's concerned over the veil of secrecy surrounding negotiations to secure the resignation of President Jacob Zuma from high office. This in the wake of reports that a deal is being negotiated with Zuma to ensure that he voluntarily steps down. On Wednesday, ANC President Soro Ramaphosa released a statement in which he assured South Africans that his engagement with Zuma seeks to find a speedy resolution to the current leadership and political impasse. Ramaphosa says he has begun direct discussions with the president on the transition and matters relating to Zuma's position as head of state. Tepo Ikaneng reports. There are concerns over suggestions that as part of his exit preconditions, President Zuma has demanded that he and his family members be granted immunity from prosecution. Zuma could face multiple charges of fraud, corruption and money laundering emanating from the armed deal saga. Whilst his son Duduzani is implicated in the alleged state capture. In a statement, Save South Africa convener Sipo Pichiana says Zuma's exit plan should be done in a transparent manner, urging Ramaphosa not to agree to any amnesty. President Zuma is also facing a no confidence vote on the 22nd of this month. 
Mozambican President Philippe Nguyen has vowed to introduce constitutional changes to decentralize power as part of peace efforts between his Frelimo party and the opposition Renamo. Nguyen says changes to how provincial governors are appointed and to provincial elections were a result of dialogue on peace with head of Renamo, Afonso Tlakama. The proposed constitutional changes will now go before Parliament. Renamo rebels fought a 16-year war against the ruling Frelimo until 1992 and unrest again boiled over between 2013 and 2016. And finally, the World Health Organization says a deadly plague epidemic appears to have been brought under control in Madagascar. WHO, however, warns that the next transmission could be more pronounced or stronger. An outbreak of both bubonic plague, which is spread by infected rats via flea bites, and pneumonic plague spread person to person has killed more than 200 people in the Indian Ocean Island nation since August last year. Madagascar has suffered bubonic plague Outbreak, outbreaks rather almost every year since 1980, often caused by rats fleeing forest fires. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jalani. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's opposition parties in Parliament are planning to meet on Monday to discuss the possibility of bringing forward the date for the vote of no confidence against President Jacob Zuma. The EFF earlier asked for this motion to be tabled on the 22nd of February. Mlamli Maneli has more from Cape Town. The decision by the opposition to meet on Monday next week follows the announcement on Tuesday by the Speaker of Parliament, Malega Mbete, that the State of the Nation address, which was due today, has been postponed to a future date. This is after opposition parties vowed to disrupt the sauna if they were addressed by President Jacob Zuma. The opposition met yesterday to reflect on the decision by presiding officers and map a way forward. Spokesperson for the DA leader, Musimaimane, is Poshia Adams. Now what came out of that meeting was that on Monday all the leaders of the opposition parties represented in Parliament will meet. Now on the agenda will be the EFF's motion of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma which has been provisionally scheduled for the 22nd of February 2018 and the Parliament's mandate to elect a new President of South Africa once President Jacob Zuma is removed. IFP Chief Whip in the National Assembly, Naren Singh, says they have given the ANC time to reflect on this. We cannot wait an indefinite time for them to resolve their problems because the problem of the ANC must not become a problem for government and for service delivery. But uh, we did give them the leeway to consult and hopefully by Monday uh, or so we can have a definite answer on when we can schedule SODA and who is going to address SONA. The EFF has given the ANC until Sunday to make an announcement on President Zuma's future. EFF Secretary General Godrich Gadi. If Zuma has not resigned by Sunday evening, we'll be left with no option, but the vote of no confidence motion that has been released to the following day, which should be Tuesday or a Wednesday next week. The opposition parties say the interests of the country reach far beyond the ANC. The ANC in Parliament refused to comment. Mlamli Maneli in Cape Town.
It's 8.07 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now we turn to the latest in our series looking at South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's relationships around the world. Britain has traditionally been one of South Africa's closest partners with long-standing historic, diplomatic and economic links. But some say ties have become strained under Jacob Zuma's presidency, a situation the UK hopes will improve under the new leadership. From London, Paul Barber reports. Jacob Zuma received a warm royal welcome on his official state visit to Britain in 2010. The president was on familiar territory. As home to several ANC leaders in exile, London was the headquarters of the international fight against apartheid. But the relationship became more frosty as Zuma's presidency developed. Some analysts say the UK government became increasingly frustrated with the South African leadership. Certainly when President Zuma paid his state visit to this country, they pulled out all the stops, he was able to meet the Queen at Buckingham Palace, all of that kind of thing. But behind the scenes, I think there has been British concern that the South Africans have been missing the boat on a key number of particularly economic ways forward. This country has sent very senior personnel down there as the High Commissioner, the Ambassador, but they've always had, I think, a very, very strange sense that what they would like to see the government down there do is not being done. Jacob Zuma didn't appreciate British press coverage of his personal life and in 2014 went as far as cancelling another visit to Britain. His foreign policy looked towards new partnerships with fellow BRICS emerging economies, especially China. Then, as domestic troubles increased for the president, British banks such as HSBC and other companies became caught up in alleged corruption, and old tensions with Britain's ruling party were never far from the surface. There is not a lot of love lost between the Conservative Party and the ANC. Uh, The Conservative Party were on the wrong side of history, and those at the top of the ANC, you know, In Cyril Ramaphosa, we're seeing someone who was part of the anti-apartheid struggle, who drafted a constitution. The political players at the top of the party have been there for a very long time and have very long memories. But London is preparing for change. It has sent several top officials to South Africa in recent months, including Chancellor Philip Hammond and Trade Secretary Liam Fox. There's a growing sense of optimism that the ANC's new leadership provides an opportunity to strengthen ties, particularly with the UK poised to leave the European Union trading bloc. Cyril Ramaphosa is a customer that they can deal with, and uh, he met with Theresa May on the sidelines of Davos, and clearly this is something that um, you know, we haven't seen Jacob Zuma doing. Um, so there's a real sense that, um, uh, that this can, could be... Um, productive. And it's not just in South Africa either, it's in the region as well. And there were three Southern African presidents at Davos this year, all of whom were there looking for new investments and all of whom are um, building a political legitimacy within their country around economic reform and economic growth. The location of South Africa's High Commission here in Trafalgar Square gives us a sense of just how important a place in Britain's history the country has. The UK now hopes there's a bright future ahead for the relationship and that South Africa will once again be seen as a beacon of economic success on the continent. Paul Barber, SABC News, London. Let's go back in time to today. In 1952, Queen Elizabeth II proclaimed her accession to the British throne following the death of her father, King George VI. Today in history.
1952. It's 8.12 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Kenyan government's decision to deport Canada to Canada, a lawyer that recently administered symbolic presidential oath on opposition leader Raila Odinga, has angered more than 30 of Kenya's top lawyers. The lawyers made submissions before a Nairobi High Court judge pleading with him to order the government to bring back the lawyer it deported to Canada on Tuesday. James Shimangula has more. More than 30 top Kenyan lawyers are angry. They are angry because the Kenyan government has unilaterally deported Miguna Miguna, one of their colleagues, to Canada where he is a citizen. Miguna Miguna is also a Kenyan citizen by birth. Trouble for Miguna, a self-declared general of Raila Odinga's proscribed National Resistance Movement NRM, started when he administered a symbolic presidential oath on Kenya's prominent opposition leader on the 30th of last month. Now, Odinga calls himself the people's president. A symbolic title that the Kenyan government does not officially recognize. However, Odinga persists that he is fit to be recognized by that symbolic title because, as he put it, the people of Kenya have been in dire need of their president. The title that deported lawyer Miguna Miguna bestowed on Odinga when he took oath last month. As Miguna remains in Canada, where, as I have said at the outset, is his second home, more than 30 lawyers are legally pushing for his return to Kenya to appear before a judge as he had been expected to do Wednesday. The lawyers argue that the government failed to comply with its own laws when it deported Miguna. The Kenyan government contended that Miguna Miguna denounced his Kenyan citizenship several years ago. But Mutula Kilonze, a Nairobi lawyer, one of the 30 lawyers pushing for Miguna's return, argued before High Court Judge Luca Kimaro that if the deported lawyer had denounced his Kenyan citizenship, he would not have been allowed to contest the seat of governor of Nairobi in last year's general election. Miguna Miguna, my lord, was cleared to contest as a governor in Nairobi under Article 99. Mr. Miguna Miguna would not have been a voter if he was not a citizen. All these things, my lord, is part of the content. Before they come, stand there on oath and tell you, my lord, how they ended up circumventing your order. Because the process of deporting any person, whether it's a Kenyan or non-citizen, is also part of the Kenyan law, and that person must appear before the court. That is what the Constitution says. And therefore, my lord, if there's ever been a, a definition of travesty of justice, today and yesterday, is where that definition fits squarely. Henry Ndobi, another lawyer from the battery of lawyers legally battling for the return to Kenya of Miguna Miguna, brought to light to the judge the fact that the court had ordered Inspector General of Police and his Chief of Criminal Investigations to appear before that very court, but they were nowhere to be seen. You subsequently ordered them to come. Two, three times they have failed to come. What they are showing you, my lord, is not disrespect to Miguna Miguna. 
So, my lord, the illegalities that have been committed are undermining the authority of this court and telling us the rule of law means nothing except when you are in government. We must stop them in their tracks. Reacting to submissions made by the lawyers representing Miguna Miguna in court, State Council Joa Shondimo had this legal point to make. It is not that the two agents of the government have any disrespect or anyone within the circle have any disrespect towards the court, towards the judiciary, and there is no need for this court to bite. In his ruling, Judge Luka Kimaru emphasized the importance of the observance of the law by all, including government officials, especially the Inspector General of Police and the Criminal Investigation Chief, the duo that he referred to as the second and third respondents. The second and third respondents cannot purport to enforce the law by breaking the law. They acted clearly in contempt of the orders of this court by detaining the applicant in breach of the orders issued by this court. This court was concerned that the second and third respondents appeared not to appreciate the seriousness of their action in failing to comply with the orders of this court, hence its decision to summon them to appear before this court. The voice of a Kenyan High Court judge, Luka Kimaru. The reference today by the judge meant he was referring to the Inspector General of Police and the Chief of Criminal Investigations who are expected to appear before him on the 15th of this month. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Nigeria and Cameroon have expressed desire to keep the status quo of their bilateral security arrangements at the borders and not to allow the use of each other's territory to launch any act of destabilization. Nigeria's National Security Advisor says all foreigners living in Nigeria should observe the laws of their host to promote good neighborliness and a peaceful stay in Nigeria. Channel Africa's correspondent Collins Adohengbe reports from Lagos. The two-day meeting which was held behind closed doors soon after opening went into examining the pressing issues which necessitated the commission's meeting, especially now that the last stages of the fight against Boko Haram insurgency is playing out and Cameroonian army has joined in Operation Lafayette Dole, which was initiated by the Nigerian army in the fight against Boko Haram terror group. Addressing the committee members, Nigeria's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, Khadija Bukar Ibrahim, said the gradual but steady dislodgement of Boko Haram has made the collaboration possible just as Abuja is keen on restoring constitutional governance to the affected areas. She called for the careful resolution of the political turmoil in Cameroon's English-speaking western enclave. This collaboration has resonated in the decimation of the threat posed by the Boko Haram terrorist group in recent years. Although there are still some challenges to overcome in the northeastern region of Nigeria, President Muhammadu Buhari is committed to the restoration of constitutional order in the affected areas. Moreover, the recent challenges in the Anglophone-speaking region of Cameroon has unsettling but a strain on the peace, security and economic prosperity of the people in the region and deserve a careful resolution. The leader of the Cameroonian delegation to the security meeting in Abuja, Ren Sani, alluded to the presence of new and existing challenges along the Nigerian Cameroonian border, which should not be wished away nor confronted without discretion. He said all hands must be on the deck to have a resounding 
result. We must not lose sight of the fact that the path towards total and complete security along our common border is still full of obstacles. As a matter of fact, new security challenges show up every day and require more diligence on our part. One of such challenges is the presence of Boko Haram in the border areas to the northwest of Cameroon, where the group has been very active and they reported incessant Cameroonian security forces incursion into communities in the mountainous area of Nigeria's northeast. But to allay on the sphere of a possible rebel realms in Nigerian territory, Babagana Monguno, Nigeria's national security advisor, told the Cameroon delegation that Nigeria will not give room for such development under any guise. It is critical for me to re-emphasize that President Muhammad Buhari assures you that we will take all necessary measures within the ambit of the law to ensure that Nigeria's territory is not used as a staging area to destabilize another friendly sovereign country. This is because we expect people who visit or reside in this country to play by our rules in the interests of peace and security. Border fracas between Nigeria and Cameroon has in the past caused frictions and the fragile peace formed part of the reason for the UN-mediated border delineation in which Abuja gave up its hold on Bakasi Peninsula. But political development in the English-speaking Western Cameroon had caused influx of refugees across the border to seek shelter in Nigeria with about 42,000 of them in camps in Cross River State. This perhaps may be the major call in the two days' discussions with a view to helping Yaoundé resolve its political problem peacefully. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosara Tohengbe for Channel Africa News. Change Your Game is a program dedicated to SMEs and entrepreneurs on the African continent. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. It is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs on the African continent. Before we even, you know, talk about the journey, please tell me what an entrepreneurologist is. <laughs> well, that's a question that I get um, everywhere I go. Catches every Friday at 1000 hours Central African time and Saturday at 1300 hours Central African time. Change your game, empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Let's go back in time to today in 19. 19- 42, during World War II, Japanese forces began invading Singapore, which fell a week later. That's today in history in the year 1942. It's 23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. An estimated 15 million girls are married every year before they reach 18. 
Child Not Brides, a global partnership working to address this problem, says although a lot more still needs to be done, it is commendable that there's increasing political will to end child marriage. The organization maintains that education is a key protective factor against child marriage. To find out more on this, Jane Rabutata spoke to Francois Mudute, head of Africa Engagement at Girls Not Brides. It's a global issue, but it's also an issue that is very prevalent in Africa. If you look at the list of the countries, the, the highest prevalence of child marriage in Africa, 15 out of the 20 countries with the highest risk are in the continent. And it's definitely an issue that is also present in other countries, other continents, across religions, ethnicity, etc., and affecting 15 million girls every single year, which is over the entire population of Senegal, the country where I'm currently based. But specifically in Africa, I think what's really important to note is that child marriage is a practice that is rooted both in poverty, culture, and tradition, and concerns for uh, girls' security, among other factors. And all of these factors are very prevalent and very deep-rooted in the situation here in Africa. You mentioned the driving factors of child marriage, poverty, and the fact that it's rooted in tradition. Now, let's reflect more on the challenges of trying to do away with this practice, given that we are talking of a region where poverty is a serious problem, and then there's the issue of people still believing that it's tradition to get their girls married even at an early age. Now, how does an organization like Girls Not Brides attempt to address this problem? So the members of Personal Project is a global partnership that brings together over 900 organizations around the world, including in Africa, of course. What we're trying to do is really to look at child marriage as a complex issue and not trying to figure out the single very simplistic response to it. For example, as you said, poverty and tradition, especially this idea that, you know, this is a practice that we've done in our community for so long, you know, how are we going to stop it now? What we're trying to do is understand that it takes different roots and strategies to end child marriage. And I would maybe say four strategies are very important to follow and to do in parallel, not separately. The first thing is really to empower girls. Empower girls with education, information, so that they can be full citizens in their states and in the communities where they belong. To give them the information, the education, and also the confidence it takes to rise and, and fight for their own rights. Francois, statistics on the number of girls who are married before their 18th birthday remain very high. In the millions, globally about 15 million girls. It doesn't sound like we are winning this battle. Would you say that's not entirely true? Are there any success stories? I would definitely disagree with that. I mean, it is a long-term battle to try and address that marriage. Where I completely agree with you is that it's a widely prevalent practice. For example, in Saharan Africa, over 38% of girls are still married before age 18. But still, what we can see in terms of progress is, first of all, the recognition now at the highest political level that child marriage is a problem. If you take only 10 years ago, talking about child marriage in the public space was a big problem. The main success and one thing I'm really proud of is that we've now taken out child marriage, the discussion about child marriage, taken it out of the home and put it into the political space. That was Francois Mudute, head of Africa Engagement at Girls Not Brides, a global partnership addressing child marriage on the line from Dakar in Senegal, speaking to Jane Rabutata.
It is 8.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Technology experts currently meeting in the Rwandan capital, Kigali, have expressed concern over existing standardization gaps when it comes to regulating information and technology on an international level. They say Africa must have collective voices on international arenas in bridging this gap. Silvanus Karamera has more from Kigali. Members of technological expertise from all countries in Africa and beyond say developing world has taken a big part in taking decisions in matters of technology and communication, a move that has left the continent behind in taking part in any decision globally. Patrick Nyereshema is the Director General of Rwanda Regulatory and Regulatory Agency, RURA. Uh, this is an effort at the continental level. So we're meeting uh, at the Africa regional group level and all the countries coming together so that we work, we work in collaboration, uh, in harmony as a group, so that whatever contributions uh, in terms of the standardization process, uh, we take them to the global level as a, jointly as a group. Because when African countries try to engage in, at an individual country level, individual will become too small to have an impact. But collectively as a region, we're able to pull together expertise, knowledge, resources, and put forward uh, strong contributions that shape uh, the standardization uh, at a global level. Delegates believe that by having one voice as a continent, not only would boost global recognition, but would also forge new opportunities for African youth aspiring for new technology. Dr. Lara Srivatsava is from International Technology Union, ITU. She says it's high time Africa, together with the other developing world, have their say on an international level. African countries must lead and influence standards making rather than simply adopt what exists. So the idea here this week is to work further to enhance the work of the study group. To give you an example, just uh, a few years ago, the African group only had one or two contributions, only one or two inputs to the work of standards. This week we have 52. So it was two or three, it is now 52. So that shows you the journey and how far we have already come. There's a lots, much, lots to do, but we have come very far in these few years. The standard city that is being spoken about allows countries to speak the same language across the board, but it's not all about coming on board on the same level with the developed world. Instead, Africa must identify what it requires in specific terms. What Africa requires in terms of their level of development and their needs and priorities. So when Africa comes to the standardization table, when Rwanda comes to the standardization table, can put forward their needs and requirements. And you know that the growth of ICT is greatest in emerging markets like Rwanda. So if Rwanda comes to the table, this is a win-win because we know what the needs are, we know what the emergent needs are for standards, and the global marketplace can not only have access to the Rwandan market, but can better understand and forecast needs for the future. If everyone is speaking a different language, if everyone, every plug is different, we cannot have economies of scale. We also cannot have competition. Then things are very expensive. For the whole week, experts in communication technology gathered under one roof in Kigali will come up with a report which will depict the picture on how best Africa can get involved in the global communication and technology standards. 
Silvanus Kalemera reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. 8.30 and our central our news headlines up next with Shalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Making headlines, more than 300 child soldiers have been released by armed groups in South Sudan. South African civil society organization Save South Africa is concerned over the veil of secrecy surrounding negotiations to secure the resignation of President Jacob Zuma from high office. And finally, the World Health Organization says a deadly plague epidemic appears to have been brought under control in Madagascar. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tula. Thank you, Shalani. Delegates from mining communities marched into the investing in Africa mining in Durban, Cape Town yesterday to deliver a memorandum to mining companies and government about their plight. The communities held a three-day alternative meeting on the sidelines of the official mining in Daba. The meeting concluded that it's time talk shops about improving the relationship between government, mining companies and communities are replaced with action. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Kolisile Dingiswayo, National Secretary for Mining Affected Communities United in Action. Good morning, Kolisile, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Morning, Lulu. Thanks for having me. Now, what has come out of your meeting? What has been at the forefront of your deliberations? Uh, One is that uh, we want to accelerate the move uh, for uh, policy changes in South Africa, uh, specifically uh, the Mining Charter and the NPRDA, to make proper provision for community beneficiation for minerals, uh, as opposed to what is happening currently, and ensuring that uh, the NPRDA also provides for uh, economic benefit for South Africans on the on the minerals. So we do not want to see uh, minerals being jetted off to overseas countries and coming back here to uh, impoverish our people even more. Let's speak about uh, some of the recommendations, other recommendations that you made or demanded as you delivered your memorandum. And what is the reaction so far? Has there been any reaction from um, the mining houses and uh, government as a whole? Yeah, uh, our memorandum sought to uh, address the issues on uh, SLPs, the social and labor plans, uh, that are in the, in the meantime not uh, really addressing uh, community challenges. And we also sought to address uh, the impunity with which the mining companies uh, are operating in, our, in, our, in, our, in South Africa and in the continent in general because it is happening everywhere in, in, in the continent. And... Uh, so that legislation or regulations must begin to have teeth and bite that uh, these companies should be held accountable. We also are advocating for the 
immediate stop of illicit uh, uh, Yes, uh, I think oh, we, we our I line is breaking I there. I lost you. Yes, I thought so no, too. Please yeah. continue. Yes, we want to bring a stop to, to illicit financial flows from mining uh, 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 royalties. So we, 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 we've been engaging with these people for the past nine years. And uh, they are uh, state of laxity. You know, they do not take you very serious because their pockets are full. But uh, they awarded us uh, a delegation of, uh, I think, 40, 40 plus people going into their uh, setup uh, to raise these issues. But these are the issues we've been raising for nine years, and to them, these issues do not mean anything. And we say to government, if the mines don't do things the way they should be doing, then we either do not have mining. Uh, or it is done correctly. And we also are saying to government, communities must have the right to say no to mining. Uh, unlike what the provision of the NPRDA is saying that the minister will have with the final arbiter, even if the community says no, with the reasons whether it is agriculture or, or environmental cares, like areas in the, in the Eastern Cape, the East Coast, those people have got uh, land that cannot, prime land that cannot be tempered with, especially uh, with regard to mining. And government has been fighting those people, uh, you know, in protecting the mining companies for almost uh, close to two decades now. And we're saying it has to come to an end. It is time that we take people's health and the people's lives very seriously over the profits that are uh, done by, uh, considered by government and the mining sector. Kolisila, it's over 20 years and you've been singing uh, basically uh, the same song with government. What has been their reaction over during this time? You mentioned earlier something that's very key and uh, it has been spoken about for a very long time where um, mining is done here and uh, the product is then taken out of the country to be refined and then brought back into the country at exorbitant prices. Do we have the facilities to ensure that uh, from the mine from the early stages of mining to the final product, are we able to deliver on that as South Africa as a country? Look, it is possible. Government only has to make uh, necessary uh, uh, regulatory provisions. Uh, it is possible. There are areas, uh, 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 say one in Rasenberg, there are other areas that I, we know of in, in, in Gauteng, but that uh, beneficiation is done at a very, very, very minute scale. But if it's done uh, 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 with all the minerals that come from the country, then imagine the level of employment that will be created by that. The economic spin-offs that will come out of that will be very amazing. So we're saying it is uh, the, the, the lack of will on the part of government uh, to, 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 to not get to that point. Maybe they still... Uh, are listening uh, to to their colonial masters that uh, it has to be first belong to the queen before it belongs it comes to to, to the servant. But we want to change that mentality. What about the and issue? We'll be doing. Every- 
Sorry, Kredisile. I was just going to find out about uh, the issue of safety in uh, mining communities and mining houses. Just a couple of days ago, we had miners, over um, uh, almost a thousand miners who were trapped underground for um, a day or two. And uh, the issue of uh, uh, just uh, during the week, also there was a commemoration of um, the two miners, the three miners who who are still trapped underground um, uh, after the Lilies mine collapsed. What is the situation with regards to safety in mines? I know that uh, a few of the unions have come out and called for um, a regulation in terms of safety of, of mining houses. Is this, did this make part of your memorandum? Yes, it does, because uh, we, we, we believe that the unions are not saying uh, uh, these things with prudence, you know, because... They are strategically located to engage with the mines and even government uh, around your network and everywhere else. But they are not pushing for these things to happen when they have the, the, the mental to do that. And we are hoping to begin engaging directly with the union uh, from the coming weeks to address this matter. The matter of the three things with uh, nine, over 900 uh, workers locked down there and the, 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 the Lily Mine uh, incident. Uh, have not really been addressed. And we want to find a way with which unions use their might as well. Because people who are in the mines are in the, with the unions, but they coming back when they are injured or when they are sick, they become a burden to our communities. So we want to make sure that we have a strategic alignment of forces to ensure that change really happens in the mining sector. Kalisila, just very quickly, um, we are running out of time, but I'd like you to touch on this. You may, the, the fact that community where, where miners go out and, and do work, go underground, come back into the communities and they're not doing well and they become, as you mentioned, become a burden on the communities. Let's speak about the plight of mining communities um, as you've engaged with them as an organization and, fa- and found out um, what the problems are and uh, you know what sort of solutions are you hoping that that uh, um, this uh, memorandum or uh, demand um, that uh, uh, government and mining houses look into, um, what sort of solutions and what sort of problems do mining communities go through or deal with on a daily basis? Yeah, Lulu, mining uh, communities are treated as commodities uh, that belongs to mainly traditional uh, uh, leaders because most mines in South Africa happen on, in communal areas. So we want to find a voice for the people who actually own the land that is only held in custody by traditional leaders. Uh, issues of your SLP for their development and so forth, your, your uh, development trusts that are actually opened by the mines in terms of the NPRDA, you don't see communities uh, represented there. Even if the, the people claim to represent communities, they run programs that do not actually address community problems. We've got hundreds of villages in South Africa where we do not have water. And yet today when there's no water in Cape Town, then it becomes a, a song. But the water in the areas uh, has been commu- uh, contaminated by mining, other under, uh, under, uh, underground streams have been dried up and so forth. But uh, these are the things that the uh, government is not addressing. And we are saying we need to have a holistic approach, which includes engaging 
with Contra Lesser, where your traditional leaders sit, and make them see the bigger picture that uh, we have a, 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 a potential of implosion. Where we at, at some point say we don't want traditional leaders anymore because they have actually sold out on the soul of our of, of our nation with this kind of things in mining. So we want to address these issues amicably. But if it goes to a push and people do not want to listen, then we are going to have to take matters in our hands and do what uh, has to be done for the sake of our children and their children. What is doing what has to be done? If it means we remove all traditional leaders, we will do so. Because uh, they do not, we believe that they uh, derive their mandate from the wishes and the will of the communities. But if they... Uh, do as they do today, seemingly because it seems that they are employed by government, not mandated by communities. Then they will have to go and work, become public servants, and leave communities alone. We will have to get people who will do what communities need. What sort of time frames have you given uh, in your memorandum to the mining houses and to government with regards to dealing with uh, your demands? Uh, look, uh, we, 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 we have been very frank and open with them uh, that we've been raising a lot of issues. Most of them we've, we've, we've already spoken about. But we are pursuing at the moment uh, engagement because we believe in South Africa that uh, our democracy was brought about by sexual engagement of equals. We do not want to engage with government as junior partners in society. Well, civil society is not a junior partner. It votes for government. So we are an equal partner. Similarly, we want to engage with the mining companies and the Chamber of Mines on an equal footing. And we are busy capacitating community leaders and activists to be able to uh, respond equally to that uh, task. Kolisile, unfortunately, we have run out of time. We'll have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Lulu. That's Kolisile Dingiswayo, National Secretary for Mining Affected Communities United in Action, joining us on the line. It is exactly 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tracy Bumgard. Thank you, Lulu. South Africa's embattled power utility Eskim says it welcomes the decision by the country's competition commission to refer for prosecution four companies accused of price fixing and tender collusion. Eskim says there are hundreds of contracts currently under review, such as the one with SGB Cape, which is one of the companies involved in the collusion. Eskim spokesperson Kulupasiwe. You have a company winning and then at some point uh, we withdrew with uh, one person signing for all of them and essentially using the same information. Internally we will be investigating that matter. ESCOM has already indicated that there are 160 cases that we are looking into of contracts of more than 1 billion rand. So this one probably will be one of those that we will be reviewing. Leaders in the United States Senate have reached a bipartisan two-year budget deal ahead of a possible government shutdown on Thursday night. Republican and Democratic principals reached a compromise package that would include approximately $300 billion in defense and domestic spending over the next 24 months, while deferring negotiations on immigration. 
The agreement also provides funds for disaster relief, infrastructure and programs for addressing the country's severe opioid crisis. Democratic Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. I'm pleased to announce that we have reached a two-year budget deal to lift the spending caps for defense and urgent domestic priorities far above current spending levels. There are one or two final details to work out, but all the principles of the agreement are in place. The budget deal doesn't have everything Democrats want. It doesn't have everything Republicans want, but it has a great deal of what the American people want. After months of legislative logjams, this budget deal is a genuine breakthrough. Africa's premier hospitality and entertainment group, Sogo Sun, plans to build a desalination plant to supply its Cape Town hotels in South Africa with their own water. Sogo's chief operating officer, Ravi Nadasen, says they hope to have the alternative water source in operation by early March at the latest. This as the city threatens to turn off most taps on day zero, scheduled now for the 11th of May. Khomotso Mopolani reports. Cape Town residents have been urged to use as little water as possible with a daily allocation of 50 litres per person, while hotels have put stringent measures in place in a bid to play their part. The city is Africa's biggest tourist destination, with tourists spending around 3.3 billion US dollars a year. This according to South African Tourism. South African diamond company De Beers is looking to extend its exploration for diamonds in Zimbabwe and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The company says this is a long-term view, but for now it will continue seeking deposits in South Africa. De Beers has obtained 16 exploration licenses in South Africa's Northern Cape Province and wants to extend searches in the Free State, Northwest and Limpopo provinces. It is currently working on a two billion US dollar Venetia project about twenty kilometers from Zimbabwe's border. De Beers, however, says its focus will remain on the countries where they are well established operations, such as South Africa, Namibia and Botswana. Economists believe Wall St- rather Wall Street's dive this week does not threaten the United States economic momentum. The Federal Reserve Bank of New New York says the rocky few days of trading would have virtually no consequence for the larger economy. Following this week's losses, the Dow is still up 37%. The central bank is expected to raise rates three times this year to get ahead of an anticipated rise in inflation. Taking a look at the financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 11.96 to the South African rand, at 9.47 Botswana Pula and at 9.73 Zambian Kwacha. It's also trading at 71 pence British pound and at 81 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,313 and platinum at $976 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $65.39 a barrel. And I'll have more in the next hour. Our sports updates up next with Figle Lingwati.
In this hour, we begin with cricket news. Despite having raked up their third consecutive ODI victory over South Africa with a massive 124-run win, Indian captain Virat Kohli says they are only focused on improving their play game by game. India have blown the Proteas out of the water in the first three ODIs and Kohli believes that with three wins out of six matches already in the bag, his charges will be more motivated to win all their remaining games. However, he adds that thinking about winning the series 6-0 is quite far-fetched at this stage with three more games to play. Well, it's quite a far-fetched thing. I, I think there's still three games to go in the series and we just want to play like we have played uh, till now. Maybe have more intensity in the next game to close the series out. The biggest positive out of today is that with 3-0 up, there's no way we can lose this series now. You know, that is certainly something that lifts the team even much more You know, compared to the mood in the first three games. As I said, we'll have more intensity and more passion when we step out for the fourth game. Look, six games... It's too far-fetched, as I said. We want to focus on one at a time and make sure that we do these things consistently well to be able to be in a position to win again. South Africa and India will now turn their attention to the fourth or momentum ODI, famously dubbed as the pink ODI at the Bidvers Wanderers in Johannesburg on Saturday to turn things around. With masterclass batsman, A.B. De Villiers also expected to return to the team. Dubini says they are expecting De Villiers' return to galvanize the struggling Proteas side. Yeah, we're certainly looking forward to that game and obviously the reasons why we play the game. Look, having AB back is obviously going to be a massive boost for us. One of the world's best players in one-day cricket. Uh, so yes, he will, he will bring confidence to the team and no doubt his leadership within the group will, will add a lot of value as well. South African Premiership side, Amazulu coach Kevin Johnson is satisfied with his team's performance after having to come from a goal down to beat Mtata Bucks on penalties in the Netbank Cup last night. Johnson was not entirely pleased, but happy to have progressed to the last 16. I thought uh, the first half we came out, uh, we could have done a lot better, especially uh, by trying to build up. I thought uh, a brow could have been a little bit better in trading the balls. And uh, yeah, we went in 0-0. And then uh, they got a free kick, which we, uh, I think it was a corner kick or something like that. And we, we warned them that they, the set pieces has got nice quality on it. We have to be careful how we defend it, and uh, we didn't. So they scored that goal, and then we had to come out for the for the rest of our lives. Ubuntu Cape Town caused the first major upset of the Netbank Cup round of 32 when they beat Pulukwane City 3-2 after extra time at the Athlone Stadium on Wednesday night. Ubuntu are making their debut in the Netbank Cup. Ubuntu assistant coach JP Jean-Pierre Farugia is enjoy overjoyed with the win. A huge night, a huge night. Um, something I suppose we didn't, you know, particularly plan to to, to have happen. Um, obviously, our main focus has been on the league, and this is a fantastic sort of um, departure. And it's a great, great feeling. And I'm probably going, as I said, probably going to mess up all the words that I say because I, I'm just too excited to to say anything further. Yeah. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. 
Recapping our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sour. South Africa's opposition parties unite to have President Jacob Zuma removed from office. And the Kenyan government faces criticism for deporting opposition lawyer. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagadza and Komuzo Mopulane, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp on 277 are taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to southern africa is major laser with a song title particular they told me everybody's 15 minutes in a different time zone and since i have it at the moment you don't want to want to shine my light on Get your life, get your life, little mama, won't you get your life on? Ain't nothing cooler than the wrong rules when you doin' to the right song, the right song. Let's shoot this movie and put the shit on the beat. I, I hope this memories are making me fall asleep. Before we hit the road, put our phones on silent. Nobody's tryna bring sand to the beach. What would it take to change the plans for the weekend? Cause I, I ain't tryna kick it like eat. The whole thing, the peak party, the precepts. Then we hit the major lead with a Jesus. Screening you like when I believe you like Baby, baby, let's 